Uh, we will be in Acts chapter 2 today, which is about here in the Bible, if you're not completely familiar with it. Uh, as we turn to these words written by Luke, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I just want to thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be a guest, and it's a privilege to be in God's pulpit here with you today. And also, it's just a treat to come. Uh, I do a lot of itinerant preaching at this point in life, but it's a treat to come and see so many familiar faces. So thank you very much, Crossway, for having me. Uh, please join me in prayer. King Jesus, as I step uh, into the pulpit this morning, I find myself um, reminded of what a privilege it is and a gift it is to be in your service. And so, Lord, as we come together as your people, I pray you would send us your spirit to illuminate your word. Father, that we might see your son, Jesus, that you would move in our lives that as we look at the gospel, we would understand what it means uh, for this to not just be a bumper sticker, but to be the driving force of our lives, the driving message of who we are, the thing that informs how we parent, how we have friends, how we, how we do marriage, how we get married, how, how we go to work, how we, how we do anything that you've put before us. And I just pray as we do that, we would understand this great and grand privilege to be sinners saved by grace, to be given new life, and to not neglect this thing that is the message of the good news that Jesus saves sinners from death to life. This is a task that is beyond my mortal frame, beyond uh, my capacity or faculties of any kind. So Holy Spirit, please fill me now. Uh, please guide us. And that whatever is of me would just be forgotten. But the things that are of the Lord Jesus Christ would shine in our hearts and sing in our hearts and be like logs on the fire uh, of our worship that we would just be lit up to glorify you with everything we do. Jesus, we love you and praise things for your glory and for our joy. And in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. So as I mentioned, we're in Acts chapter 2, which is about here. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I saw some on the back table over there. I saw some under some of the seats. If you don't own a Bible, and this is what you get to do when you're a guest preacher, please take that home with you. Those are the words of life. Um, I, I joke about the things you get to do as a guest preacher, but I am absolutely sincere. Please, if you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. Um, so as we look to Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at this very famous sermon that the apostle Peter preaches. But as we look to this sermon, as we think through it, uh, many of us bring questions as we come on into a place like this. Uh, some of you uh, have been uh, Christians for a long time, and you just relish or even pray for or long for the opportunity to share the truth about who Jesus is with other people. And yet sometimes you find yourself saying, yes, I want to do evangelism. Yes, I want to tell people about Jesus. But what should I tell them about Jesus? Specifically, if you find yourself uh, with that moment on the bus going to work downtown or on the plane or with your neighbor or in the elevator at the line at Starbucks or whatever situation you might have where it's brief. If I only have a few minutes, what should I say? I hope this sermon answers that question for you. Or perhaps you're in here and you say, yes, I, I love Jesus. I, I love the Bible. Uh, and I, I hear people use this word gospel. And I think that means about Jesus but, but what is that? I can't even quite, how would I actually define this thing 
that is the gospel? I hope that question will be answered for you today as well, if it's not. And perhaps you're coming in here today and you don't know who Jesus is and you don't know the message of our faith and of, of who we love and worship. And you're here to hang out with some Jesus-y kind of people to learn some things about who he is and what Christianity is. Well, friends, I hope that today you have those questions answered. And you might come in here today thinking you have had all those questions answered. Maybe you have thought that you know all of these things and you've rejected Jesus and you say, no, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want anything to do with it. Uh, perhaps today, I think from this sermon, not mine, but Peter's, that perhaps that'll be challenged a little bit. And maybe you're in here today and you're a Christian and you say, well, yeah, I've already heard a million sermons and I've read the Bible and I, I know, I know it all. Um, and maybe you could be challenged today as well. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22. Now, there's two things you have to understand to make sense of this sermon that we're about to hear. One is that you have to understand that Peter is this guy who walked around with Jesus for three years. To say the least, someone who's walked around with a second member of the Trinity for three years, walking around with Jesus uh, for three years, he has had what you might call a divine encounter. He has experienced life in the flesh with Jesus in a way that we will not in this life. Yet something happens to Peter here in this moment on this thing that is called Pentecost. Something happens to Peter that he has a, an encounter with God that's so significant that he comes out and he has this message that he must share, that he cannot hold in, and he shares with these people here in Jerusalem. That's one thing you have to understand. The other thing, and this is true of just about understanding any passage in the Bible, and I'll, I'll tell you this, the Bible usually will do this for us. Uh, we sort of need the you are here map. You know, the thing that when you're at the sprawling Tulalip outlet mall looking for that pair of shoes that you have to find for the interview because you realize you don't actually have a pair of shoes for the interview. You want to get in. You want to get out. You need to find a shoe store. You need to find some shoes but it's really difficult if you don't know where you are. And so you find a map and it's got a sign that says, you are here. And from that map, you find the shoes and you go on with the rest of your life. Well, frankly, sometimes we open the Bible and we actually don't know where we're standing. So here's where we're standing here with Peter in Acts. God made absolutely everything good and human beings broke it. That is world history in about 20 seconds or less. Human beings broke it, yet God, right at the beginning, makes a promise that he's going to send someone to put back what human beings broke. And he makes that promise right there when they break it. And the first 78% of your Bible, the Old Testament, uh, tells us the story of God working through history to redeem broken humanity. And throughout the whole 78% of the Bible, Jesus will tell us this thing is about me. Through that first 78%, we're being told about this Messiah, this one who's going to come, the one who's going to wipe away the tears from the eyes, the one who's going to bear sin, the one who's going to, to rule uh, with God's justice and kindness and mercy, and the one who's going to put everything the way it ought to be. And what Peter has concluded after three years of walking around with that Messiah, that person, is that person was Jesus, and he wasn't just a person. He's God incarnate in the flesh and that Jesus made these promises. He said, I'm going to go so a helper will come. Something's going to, I actually have to leave and something better is going to come. And so Jesus lives, 
He dies for sin. He rises from the dead so broken people can be redeemed to God, not because of anything we have done, but everything he has done. Christian brothers and sisters, if you are in here, you need to understand that you love Jesus because God has moved in your life, not because you are clever. And if you are in here and you do not know Jesus, you need to know that that is our message. Our message is not one of how we get to God, but how God came to rescue us and his son, Jesus Christ. And so Peter, here in Jerusalem, has the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. God himself does this thing that he promised to do in places like Joel 2, which is a text which we just don't have time to read, but it's wonderful. Throughout the Old Testament, God promises that something is going to happen and that God is going to come and take up residence inside of us. This is called the indwelling of the Spirit. If you're a Christian person, the Spirit dwells inside of you. Acts chapter, or pardon me, Romans chapter eight and a million other places is one of the priorities of the New Testament. That the reason that you can live your Christian life is that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that even when you feel like you're alone, or, or you feel abandoned, or you feel left, that God is actually with you, always. He's with you in, regardless of your circumstances. He's re- with you regardless of the things you suffer. He's with you in your joys. That one of the great promises that Jesus came and fulfilled was that the Spirit would come and dwell inside of us. And that is radically different. That is a change in human history. That's something that the Old Testament saints, the people who are waiting for the Messiah, longed to look at. They longed to see that day. And that day here at Pentecost is finally here. And brothers and sisters, you need to know the beautiful truth that though we cannot repeat this experience that is Pentecost, we can't put it in a box and put it away either. That as Christian people, we understand our life is lived in the power of the Spirit. And so Peter has had this divine encounter with the Spirit of God And he runs out to tell people about this. And to be frank, everyone thinks he and his other compatriots are intoxicated. It's early in the morning. They think they're intoxicated because the Spirit has allowed them to speak in all these different languages and proclaim the gospel. Now, here in 22, uh, this, this Peter is going to unleash for us what I think is one of the most powerful sermons ever preached in all of history. One of the most powerful sermons, even in the book of Acts, which is full of sermons, And I have just been struck by this text in the last month. That this is the thing that Peter just has to get out when he has this divine encounter with the Holy Spirit. This is the thing he just has to say. And so here we are in 22. And if you're a note taker, this this sermon's gonna kind of work this way. Again, it's my sermon and Peter's sermon here. So I have my sermon where I'm talking about what Peter's saying. But but Peter's sermon and really what we're gonna look at here comes out in three movements. It's, It's a very typical sermon. It starts with a... Uh, scripture reading, and then it's got a beginning, middle, and an end with some application. But what's important here is that we see that there's three movements. The first movement is the essential gospel. And after he's unpacked for us this essential gospel, he moves into the context of the gospel. He places this gospel in history for us. And then the third movement is what we actually do with that gospel, or our response to the gospel. So here we are in 22. I'm going to read this chunk, and then we're going to take it apart for a minute. A minute of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Uh, what I think we get here are the, the three parts that make up the whole of the gospel. And so some have called this the manger, the cross, and the crown. Some people like to call it the cradle, the cross, and the crown, but Jesus didn't, wasn't laid in a cradle. He was laid in a manger. And so though, uh, if you have that Baptist background that makes you want to make it three C's, you can call it cradle. But if you want to be theologically accurate, it's a manger. So we'll go with manger, cross, and crown. But what these three parts, and what I think Peter is after here, these three parts are the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they're here in the text, and I'll show you. So verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, right? An actual living human being with an address. Make no mistake, he's doing that on purpose. We're talking about this Jesus, the one you know, the one who was here, the one who preached, the one who brought the news of the kingdom, which you crucified, which we'll see him talk about in a second. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Peter has a confidence here. He has a confidence that they know that Jesus has been walking around for three years doing things. He's been casting out demons. He's been feeding people with little boys' lunches. He's been healing the sick. He's been restoring sight to the blind. He's been doing all these wonderful works, signs that God did through him. And let's be clear who did it. God did through him. This, this will be important for us in a second, so we'll come back to that idea. In your midst, as you yourselves know. Uh, what I've noticed about Peter here in this sermon recently is how much he will say things like that. I'm telling you this, but you already know it. He had all the signs of Messiah. He had all the signs of the one that God promised, and you rejected him. But when we look to this, we see this truth of the gospel that Jesus comes and lives, and he lives a life that you and I should have lived. And he does this in a couple of ways. Uh, one, if you want to know what your life as a Christian should look like, go to the Bible, go to the Gospels, and read about Jesus. He is our example. Now, when you do that, I do not want you leaving here, finding a blind person, finding some mud on the ground, spitting in your hand, making a mud mixture and putting it in their eyes, don't do that. You know, don't go to school tomorrow and find a little boy's lunch and say, hey, I've got lunch catered for everybody. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is the reality that Jesus loved God and loved people perfectly. This is your job, friends. As a Christian person, this is our response to the grace we've been shown, is to dedicate the entirety of our life to loving Jesus and loving people, even people who make us grumpy, cranky, or inconvenience us in many ways. Now, what's amazing about Jesus is he did this perfectly, which will be important when we get to the next part when we talk about the cross. He did this perfectly. But he did another thing that I think sometimes we miss. One of the problems that we have is that we spent so much of the last century as Christians defending the divinity of Jesus against people who said Jesus wasn't really God, he was just a nice teacher, that we forgot that Jesus was a human being. Now hear me correctly, fully God, but that he was also fully a human being. Why is this important for us? Why should that matter? 
something that reveals that, that we missed this is that often when you would say, well, why did he take that little boy's lunch and turn it into to a catering for 5,000 people? Well, 5,000 men plus women and children, if we're being technically accurate. That's a lot of food for a lot of people from a little boy's lunch. Well, you say, well, he did it because he's God. What's, what's the problem with that? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that he was a faithful high priest. We don't need to worry about that part too much right this moment. But he was made like us, he was made like his brothers in every way, yet knew no sin. He was made like you so that he knows what it's like to be you. That when you go to Jesus and you look at me and you say, well, geez, guest preacher, you don't know me. You don't know what I have going on in my life. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I go through. You don't know what's waiting for me tomorrow. And friends, I would tell you, you are absolutely correct. Human being. Now, what's amazing about Jesus, he actually does know because he's sovereign king of all things, he knows. But also because he was fully human and walked on this earth, he also knows. He's been betrayed. He's he's been hungry. He's been rejected. You know, this scene in Mark's gospel, he's coming to bring the good news of the kingdom. And what happens? Religious leaders say he's possessed by Satan and his brothers and his own mama come to get him because they think that he is crazy. That is a bad day. Maybe last week you went to work, or maybe last week you went to school, or maybe last week you were uh, doing something with your family and you felt like people didn't understand you. The time in which the people that have been looking and longing for the Messiah to come, Messiah shows up and they say he's possessed by Satan and his mama says he's crazy. Guess what? He knows what it's like to be a person who's not understood. He's a faithful high priest that you can actually go to. But not only that, having faced all these circumstances, he didn't sin while he was facing them. Our response to sin in and of ourselves is to turn the other cheek, be gracious and wonderful and kind to all people all the times and pray for those who persecute us. Wrong. My response in and of myself to sin is to sin against others. Sometimes not even the person who sinned against me, right? Our response to sin is to sin. That is what we do as sinners apart from Christ. Now, in Christ is a different story, but we'll get to that part of the story. So this good news of the gospel is that Jesus actually knows what it's like to be you and can relate to you, uh, but also that he lived this life that you should have lived. He's never lashed out in anger when someone sinned against him. He's never done those things. And God takes that life in place of yours. This is good news, friends, that when you arrive at the white throne of judgment, you're not judged on your works, but on his. And that is a gift you cannot earn. Now, with all of these, I think we'll see that, that if we're, we're not careful uh, we miss, A, what this shows us how to live, but also if we push these things too far or kind of develop a lopsided gospel, when we get into one of these three components without taking in the other two, our, our gospel gets lopsided. So what happens is uh, when we just focus on this one piece, we begin to say, oh, I have to love people. It becomes a social justice gospel. I am saved because I have loved people. Yes, love people. Yes, care for people but your righteousness does not flow from your care for people. 
You care for people in response to the way that Jesus has cared for you. We're told in the Gospels that if you have two tunics, give one away. Well, to be frank, we often do that in a really sinful way. And we're in the Seattle metro area, right? We love to do philanthropy and then pat ourselves on the back and tell everybody how awesome we are for doing it, right? The reality is, is that you probably have, maybe, I, I don't know what you're coming from, but many of us, maybe I'd put it that way, many of us have more coats in your closet that you can wear in one time, right? You actually don't need all of those coats all the time. So give one away. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, put it on eBay and make extra cash on it because it's cool. It means you have two coats, give one away. Now the problem is when you give that coat away so everyone will throw you a parade or you can feel good about yourself or you can go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I gave a coat away. You have to let me into heaven. Well, just like the tip jar that says karma, you haven't actually given that coat to the person who needs the coat. You've given it to yourself. We live in the Northwest. We love the idea of karma. We have these tip jars at every coffee shop. They say karma, and that means that good things that you do will come back to you. So when you put the money in the tip jar uh, so that you can get some good karma, friends, if that is your worldview and your way of thinking, you are not actually giving the money to the barista. You're putting it in your own bank account because you're believing you're paying it forward so it will come back to you. What sounds other-centered is actually very selfish. What seems generous is not. We need to be careful not to develop a works righteousness around loving other people, but to respond to the fact that you have more than you can possibly imagine because if you are a Christian, you have Jesus. And because you have Jesus, you have everything. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? That means that the cross of Jesus Christ is not plan B. It is plan A. That does not mean that when Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God, God said, oh no, I didn't see that one coming. What are we going to do about this? Jesus? Jesus, what do you think? Right? That's, that's not how it rolls out. God in his sovereignty actually knew he was going to create them, and by the way, you, knowing all the ways that you were going to sin against him, and yet he created you anyways. And friends, if you're a Christian, not only did Jesus save you, fully knowing all the ways that you'd sinned against him in the past, before he saved you, in his sovereignty, he saved you, knowing all the ways you would sin against him in the future, and yet he saves you and me anyways. You. In the Greek, it's technically y'all. You all. Y'all. You all. Crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You put him on the cross. Now, by the hands of lawless men, he's talking about these Roman authorities that were the people who actually did the execution because the Judeans didn't have the capital punishment kind of authority. So they have to go to Romans to kill Jesus. See the irony. Jesus 
God's king came to God's people, and God's people went to a foreign nation they wanted God to redeem them from and said, will you kill the Messiah for us? The people of God took God's son and went to people who adamantly rejected God and said, will you kill him for us? We need someone to kill him. Some of these things are the little things that when we're reading here in 2018 as Gentiles, most of us or all of us in the room come from a Gentile background, meaning you're not from a Jewish family necessarily. Sometimes we miss the, the, the profound nature of little comments like that. So now you imagine you are here, you're a Judean, you were there, you saw Jesus for three years, and you were in the crowd saying, crucify, crucify, crucify. And Peter is telling you that one that you were shouting, crucify, crucify, crucify about was God's Messiah who came to save you from yourself and from your sin and to life in him. Uh, if you grew up in the church, I adamantly reject, if you don't remember when you got saved, I adamantly reject the idea that you have a boring testimony. John the Baptist does not have a boring testimony. You have God's grace and mercy poured out on you. If you remember a time when you were not a Christian, when you remember a time when you were not a Christian, we're in the same boat these guys were in. We rejected Jesus. We said we didn't want anything to do with Jesus. We didn't want his gospel. Saying with the world, that's not the Messiah and he deserved to be crucified. That's you. That's me. Enemies, that's an enemy, by the way. You were an enemy of God in that state. And by the way, if you're in here and you're not a Christian, there's no passive rejection of Jesus at this point in time in history, not just in the sermon. <laughs> you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is where we get this beautiful, wonderful truth that is atonement. Now, for years and years and years, when I would hear a preacher say, think of it this way, atonement at one meant, I would say to myself, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard and I wish you wouldn't say that. You're embarrassing all of us. Until I was humbled by actually reading something about this particular word. Uh, John Wycliffe, not John Wyclef or Wyclef Jean, if you remember the Fugees. <laughs> Old. Don't be confused, not that guy. Uh, John Wycliffe, in translating the Bible into English, came across this word that he didn't have a way to say with an English word. This thing that Jesus does for you and me on the cross Penal substitutionary atonement. He is punished for my sins in my place to make me right with God. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Jesus takes my shoddy, ramshackle, sinful life and the things I deserve for my rebellion against the king and he gives me what he deserves as God's son and Messiah. And that, friends, isn't fair. You need to know this about the gospel right now. 
The gospel isn't fair. The gospel is not the message about how you earn anything, how God needed you for his team and he gave you a signing bonus. It is the message about how we came, not just with empty hands, but with sinful liability against God. And he plucked us out of our own self-destruction, our own rebellion, our own hell, and made us alive together with his son. So this thing that is the atonement means that we are washed clean from our sins. If you're a Christian, you're washed clean of all of your sins, of all of your wrongdoings. Again, not just the things you did before you met Jesus, but everything you did after. Sometimes we honestly think that all the things that I do after, that's on me to fix, and that Jesus just took care of the stuff before, and now it's my job to do the spiritual push-ups and do right in the world. It's, it is, honor God, do right in the world, mortify and war against your sin, uh, fight against your sin tooth and nail, but no, you do it empowered by the Spirit in response to the gospel, and that as an act of grace and mercy, we prevail against our sin. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you, we're told in the book of James. Now, here's the thing that this shows us, this truth of, of the cross shows us. It shows us how messed up and sinful and wrong we are, apart from Christ. But just like if we push the one part of the, the three parts, the manger, the cross, and the crown, too far, and we only focus on, what, on that one, we go from the truth of total depravity, that apart from Christ, absolutely everything I do is sin. That means my wiling out, my rebellion, my wrongdoing, sinning against God actively, sinning against people actively. And at the same time, it means all the right things I do for the wrong reasons, like giving people coats so I can have a parade. That is just as detestable in the eyes of God. To, to be self-righteous and self-justified. But in addition to that, it's all the right things we just choose not to do that we cannot be inconvenienced by. It's Saturday afternoon. Houston lost. The Mariners are playing the race. We might be first place in the AL West. And the door has a knocking sound. And there's a Jehovah's Witness on the other side who needs Jesus. And I cannot be inconvenienced at this point in time and answer the door because we're about to beat the race and be number one in the AL West for the first time in a very, very, very long time. That's sin. I mean, I just call it out. Now I get it, right? You're at home with your kids. It's Thursday morning. It's 10 a.m., the baby's been crying, you know, everybody's in their pajamas, you're not ready to receive company and someone knocks at the door at 10, I get it, right? You're trying to rush for your robe or whatever to be decent so that you can welcome the Jehovah's Witness in, make them coffee and tell them about the Trinity. And then they go away and you don't make it. Don't spend the rest of your life feeling guilty about it. And honestly, even if you were watching the game yesterday and decided not to open the door, here's the amazing thing about the gospel. Romans tells us if you look at that and say, well, you know, Jesus paid for that. It'll be cool. I can watch the game. That you haven't actually heard the gospel and don't understand who Jesus is. Wrong. However, we don't walk around feeling the guilt of all these things all the time. We repent. It's called being a Christian. You look at it and say, Jesus, that was wrong. Forgive me. Thank you that that is on the cross. 
empower me to do differently. And we do that every day a million times because we're Christians and that's our life. Now, our problem is when we focus on this too much, sometimes we end up with this thing that I would call utter, and others have called utter depravity, where you don't actually think that as a Christian person you can ever please Jesus ever. That there's nothing you can ever do to ever make him happy and that your life is just sin, sin, sin all of the time and that everything you touch is, is sin. I would say on this side of eternity, sin has touched every part of our lives. Absolutely. It's, it, there's a corrupted state. But you also need to know that the Bible talks an awful lot about living a life pleasing to Jesus. It pleases Jesus when you come to him in need. It pleases Jesus when you pray to him. It pleases Jesus when you open his Bible and you read his word. It pleases Jesus when you pursue him. It pleases him when you want to know him. It pleases him when you get up at five in the morning to read your Bible reading plan, even though you don't want to and you sleep in twice and you're grumpy and cranky and you don't want to and you say, Jesus I don't want to be here right now. I want to be in bed. My flesh is weak, but my spirit is willing. Please, Jesus, just help me. I don't even want to be here right now, but I love you, and so I'm here. Help me, Lord. Get in the fight. That pleases him. It pleases him when you get knocked off the horse on your pursuit of him and your holiness, and you get back up, you dust yourself off, you come to Jesus with empty hands and say, help me, please, Lord. Help me, help me. Help me. The reality is that sin is everywhere. But if we miss this, we miss that the, the idea that you are a sinner is a reality of your life apart from Christ. In Christ, you are a saint. In Christ, you are washed clean by his blood. In Christ, you are his. And not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities, or everything, anything in all of creation could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is not a future reality. If you are a Christian person, that is your reality right this moment, regardless of what you brought in with you today. You are more loved by the God of the universe than you can possibly imagine, which brings us to our last point, the crown. So do you see that? We can push these, if we, if we overemphasize one to the neglect of the other, all of a sudden we get into some bad territory, right? The cross, Pardon me, the crown. God raised him up. You killed him, God raised him. Loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Adam and Eve sin against God, enters sin, enters death. Uh, Satan has a lot of power on planet Earth. Jesus comes and he conquers Satan and he conquers sin and he conquers death. Okay? Satan is still at work, but he is defeated. He's as good as done. Uh, the great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, used this metaphor. He said he's like a dragon who's had his head cut off. He's got a spiky tail. It's still whipping around and doing stuff, but it's over. Game over, Satan. Everything has happened. It is finished. Right? And death. Death will be no more. Uh, if we are here before Jesus returns, we will die, but we will immediately go to be with him. And eventually we will be resurrected in resurrected bodies with the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus will put this world back the way it's supposed to be. He will wipe every tear from every eye. And it will be a grand, great redo in some, res in some respects of what it was supposed to be in Genesis 2. The dwelling place of God is with man. 
in the new heavens and the new earth, when he fixes all the things that we have broken. And this is, this is just marked by the resurrection, that these things couldn't hold him. And, and, and it's not just that he rose, it's that he's reigning right now. He rose to reign. And we'll see this in just a second. Peter's gonna really emphasize this part, which I think is interesting that is Peter's main emphasis from here on out. But he rose and he rules and he reigns, which means that when you and I talk to God, he actually hears you. And I know that sounds very simple. And I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but I think we forget what I would call the realities of right now. That he's present with us. We're indwelt by the Spirit. We're too, when someone read that, we're two or more gathered in my name. I'm also, right? Like he's with us now. When you open God's word, he is speaking through his word to you. And to every other Christian person on the planet that is doing that at the same time, because he's God and you're not, he can do that. Doesn't run out of minutes, right? We miss that. Sometimes we just feel like, well, you know, I read my Robert Murray machine that tells you I'm a nerd, uh, Bible reading plan, and I check it off. Well, the reason why I get into my Robert Murray machine reading plan is because I want to hear from the Lord in a really regular and intentional way. You have a life now in Jesus. It's not just future. In John's gospel, uh, he uses the word eternal life a bunch. The thing we miss is we are kind of clued in to think when we hear that word, we think future, we think heaven. It does mean that. But that's an eternal life that begins now. Okay. You were apart from Christ and you are now in Christ Yes, absolutely. There are these things we call positional realities. Ephesians tells us that there's a seat at the table for you at the throne room, that you're sealed, that your citizenship is good as, good as gold. Imagine it this way. There's a great wedding feast at the end of everything. There is a name with your name, a name card. Everybody loves a little name card. You feel special when you show up at a wedding and you find your thing. And look, my name is on a card. Someone printed out a thing and put my name on the card. They knew I was coming. Friends, there's one of those waiting for you in the kingdom of God and no one can take it away. At the same time, you are presently being loved by Jesus. There are now realities of your life in Christ. I've mentioned it several times. You are indwelt by the Spirit as we speak. When you pray to Jesus, he hears you right now. You are a son or daughter of God Most High right now. You are no longer dead. You are alive right now. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, through his son, made you alive together with Jesus. That's now. That's not tomorrow if you're a Christian. That's right now. And sometimes we forget that, and especially if we overemphasize that sin piece, sometimes we miss that we're sinners in Christ because we're this weird mixture of sinner saint right maybe maybe you had that ride in the van here today with your kids and you just let them have it because they're arguing about something stupid right and all of a sudden there's no more there's no more conversation there's no more loudness but there's also no more merriment and it's quiet and you think i have peace and you realize that's not peace that's a ceasefire right? And it's a miserable way to live. And so then you come in here 
and you're ready to sing songs to Jesus, and you realize, I'm not really ready to sing songs to Jesus because I did that to my wonderful children in the van on the way here. Right? This is this mixture, sinner, saint. But did you stop and consider that you even actually care? That God is gracious enough to you that when you, that happens, you care about it? That God is gracious enough to you that you can honestly go get up out of your seat, go check your kid out of kids' ministry, kneel down and say, what daddy did there was wrong. Please forgive me. And when you do that, we have this mixture where because you're a sinner, you need to repent. But because you're a saint, you want to and you do. And because your sins are on the cross, you're forgiven and you're free. And the thing about little kids, if you have had any in your house, the weirdest thing is when you do that, when you say, Papa did that there, please forgive me. It's amazing how you can't even get, please forgive me out of your mouth. And they give you a big hug and say, I forgive you. And they like, run, let's go play. And you're like, don't you want to punish me? (laughs) Don't you want to give me the silent treatment for a while? No, we got Duplo to play. What a wonderful picture of what God does for us. God, don't you want to punish me for a while? Don't you want to take me out into the desert so I can wander around for a while? Don't you want to not hear my prayers for a while? I know I repented and I really, really mean it and I want to be renewed and I want to change. Don't you want to put me in the corner for a while? He says, no. No, because you're his kid. That's the now reality of your life in Christ and in the gospel. So it's the manger, the cross, and the crown. This is the good news, that he lived the life we were supposed to live. He dies on the cross in our place for our sins, but in his resurrection, we get included in this life with God. So we're sinners saved by Jesus from death to life. We've got a lot of life, friends. And then David puts this in the context of history. For David says... Peter, why are we talking about David? I thought we were talking about Jesus. We'll get there. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is in my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Now, this is a tricky word. It means different things at different times, but here I I would argue means grave, like the tomb Jesus was in. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Now what you have to understand about David that we sometimes miss is that David was, prior to Jesus, I'll say that so you don't start start throwing, throwing rocks at me, was the king of kings. By that I mean, he, in everybody's mind, he's the king par excellence. He is George Washington. We don't have kings. This is kind of far from us. But you know, you think of George Washington as the president of presidents or maybe Abraham Lincoln. If that's your thing, that's okay. I'm not here to argue about that point. But we have this idea in our head of the ultimate example of a thing. And David was the king of kings. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. Yeah, he was cool and all, and he's dead. And his tomb is with us to this day, meaning I can show you 
where he's buried. This is a contrast because Jesus doesn't have one of those. It's implicit. He's saying, okay, David was great. Jesus is greater. Being therefore a prophet, so he's looking forward to what God would do, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that, we, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. So you're there, it's Christmas time, you're reading this genealogy in Matthew's gospel that determines that Joseph is in David's family, and you skip it because you're like, genealogies are boring. They're not, I promise. Well, the one in Chronicles is kind of boring, but <laughs> that one in Matthew's just fantastic. But one of the things that's signaling is that Jesus is this one that has been promised to sit on David's throne. This is the Messiah who God's going to send to put everything back. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So that Psalm 16, he's saying, that thing was actually about the resurrection of Jesus. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus raised up and to that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise uh, of the Holy Spirit. He, poured, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Remember, he's dead. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, which is a wonderful trick. Trick? It's tricky. It says Lord and Lord there. Here's the thing. As this, and I always want to be careful, uh, the pulpit is not the place to nerd out about Greek or Hebrew. And in fact, I only ever bring it up when I think the point demands it. Because I think the thing that you should know more than anything about the Bible in your hand, if you have a good, solid, modern translation, is that this thing is an amazing representation of the Greek and the Hebrew and you are very blessed uh, um, you know, amongst people in history to be able to read it and have it. Just so you know. The Lord says to my Lord in Hebrew says, Yahweh, which is the proper name of God, says to Adonai, which is a very Hebrew way to say Lord or to talk about God. And that word almost always, always means God. And so as David wrote Psalm 110, you know, thousand years before Jesus-ish, he said, Yahweh said to Adonai, or a different way, God said to God. Now, by the time we get to the writing of the Greek Bible that Peter is using here, they've taken up the practice of not even saying the name Yahweh. They say Lord, which is the word kurios, which is a flatter word. So when they go to translate Psalm 110 into Greek, they say, what do we do here? Because it says Yahweh said to Adonai, but we translate Yahweh, kurios, and we translate Lord, or Adonai, kurios, what do we do? And so they wrote, Kurios, well, it says, Kurios said to Kurios. The Lord said to my Lord, because they're in a conundrum. They're in a translation problem because they don't know what to do because they look at it and they say, God says to God doesn't make any sense. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. It's something that the early church took and held on to and said, look at this thing that David wrote. Yahweh is the father, Adonai is the son. The father says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this whole thing that's happening, he's putting this thing in context. He's saying this thing that happened, this Jesus thing that happened is that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose, and he ascended. He's the one we were waiting for. 
He came and did what God said he would do, and now he's waiting to put everything back the way it's supposed to be and finish all the things God promised to do. He puts it in its historical context, which is the second movement, by the way, the context of the gospel. And to drive it home, he says this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. By the way, Crossway Fellowship, just so you know, which you might already, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's where we get the word anointed one, which is what Messiah means. He's saying God and Messiah. He's using Lord. This is, this is God and Messiah. Jesus, whom you celebrated, listened to, appreciated, and followed without reservation. Nope, I hope you have your Bible open because you'd realize that's not what it says there at all. I don't know how you guys do it here. I know how you guys do it here because I know you guys. My hope is that your Bible is open in your laps and you realize it says what? God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You killed him. The third movement's amazing. You always gotta read your Bible slowly. Right? This, if, you're, if you've been in the church a long time, Acts 2 is probably something you've read a lot. I've just been blown away by this sermon in the last month. This is what he says. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When we hear this truth of the gospel, it should cut us to the heart. If you're not a Christian, I hope you are cut to the heart. If you are a Christian and you're not walking in the reality that has been laid out for us here, I hope you are cut to the heart and called back to the things that Jesus has already gifted you with. Now they heard this and were cut to the heart and they do the right thing. Listen. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? If you look at this and you look at this and you say, you know what, I am a Christian and my life isn't being lived in the wake of these things. Right now is a really great time to ask yourself and really the Lord the question, what shall I do? And if you're not a Christian, now is a really great time to ask the question, what shall I do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism was not invented by John the Baptist. By the way, he's not part of the Southern Baptist Convention. It should technically be John the Baptizer. But that's another sermon for another day. Baptism was actually a practice that existed for people who converted to Judaism and was part of the deal. They were baptized as part of their conversion. They were also, if you're a male, circumcised, and there were a bunch of other stuff they did, but it was at least part of the bigger picture, right? We are baptized because we are buried with Jesus, metaphorically, and risen with him, and we're also baptized into the community of faith. You're baptized into a church. The Bible doesn't understand you being a Christian apart from these people you're sitting with here. The Bible doesn't really have a category for you just doing your thing with Jesus on your own. He's actually given you a people to belong to. That's why you're here, right? And it's not just so that you can hear me talk or hear the, the music play, which, you know, my talking's mediocre. The music's pretty good. But also because we're to belong to one another, right? That, that these are the people you're responsible for helping follow Jesus and they're responsible for helping you. But also when we're baptized, it symbolizes that we, the old us, or that guy's dead, right? The new you is here. 
So what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. So we turn from our sin and be baptized. So we repent and we get baptized. So it's the turning from our sin and our turning to Jesus in baptism. Okay? Here's what we sometimes do. We repent, but we don't turn to Jesus. You identify a sin in your life and you say, this thing has to go. And the way I'm going to make this thing go is I'm going to do the spiritual push-ups that are going to make it go away. I'm going to white-knuckle it, and I know I'm not supposed to do that, so I'm not going to do that. And when I want to do it, I'm going to snap my wrist with a rubber band and say, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And one of two things happens. Eventually, you fail, and you do it again, and you feel horrible and guilty, and you say, why didn't I try harder? Or you succeed and you grow in spiritual pride and arrogance and think you are awesome. I actually have more hope for you when you fail. I'm more concerned with you for you when you succeed. Because the point of, of that is not just that I turn from my sin, but that I turn to Jesus. And then I walk away from the dominion of darkness and I walk into the kingdom of light. And this is what he gives them to do. Repent and be baptized. So turn from your sin and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Jesus, be empowered by the Spirit to live for him. Now listen, for the promise is for you and for your children. So he's talking to Judeans there. So these people who are in Abraham's family. So it's for you and your kids. But then he says this other thing that we often miss. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So if you don't come from a Jewish background uh, family, you are what's called a Gentile. We are far from the promises of God, and yet God has moved that here in this, whatever it is, first week of June in 2018, that the gospel has gone forth to the ends of the earth, that you would be welcomed into the family of God. All whom he will call. Which is really good news, by the way, when that sister or that brother or that person, you just keep praying your guts out for them and they, they haven't heard and you've told them this truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we keep praying and we keep praying and we keep praying because we remember that it's God's sovereign grace, not my eloquence or ability or efforts that saves people, but that God is in the business of saving people who are really far off, like I was and like you were. And with many other words, which means this isn't the whole sermon. So don't look at this and say, well, I can read that in three minutes. Can you be quiet now? Preach like Peter. No, I am preaching like Peter. It was longer than this. Um, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. That also means not everybody received his word. Some people heard that and said, that is garbage, moving on. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the good news of the gospel. He came, he lived in my place, died for my sins, rose from the dead. We're saved by grace. We're sinners saved from our sin to life in Jesus, starting right now and forever and ever. And he's going to put this whole thing back the way it's supposed to be. He is going to wipe every tear from every eye. He's ruling and reigning and will rule and reign in our midst forever and ever. If you don't know Jesus, 
This is Jesus. This is the gospel. It is a gift of grace. It's not a story about how you come in here and put on your Sunday best and act like a Christian and get to be part of the Christian club. It's a story of a bunch of people who, apart from Jesus, are sinners and are empty-handed and are messed up that Jesus has saved and given new life and where people are saying, come on in, there's room for you here. And if you are a Christian and you're saying, I don't think I'm lit up the way Peter's lit up here. I don't, I don't feel like this gospel is some, uh, some irresistible thing that I can't like, keep inside anymore. That's not me. Or, or when you talk about these three things, yeah, I'm doing one or the other. Or, yeah, the spiritual push-ups, that's, that's me. Well, friend, if you're a Christian, here's the good news. Today is the day. Don't do anything else until you get right with Jesus. Don't, don't do anything else until you repent and turn to him. Don't do anything else until you seek his face and his word. Don't do anything else until you grab one of your brothers or sisters here and say, I need some help. I need you to pray with me. I need you to read the Bible with me. I need you to tell me about Jesus. I want my life to be different. I want it to be lit up for the Lord. I want it to be different. Help me. Jesus, help me. And if you're in here today, and I'm not saying this perfectly, it's never perfectly when we're living here on planet Earth as it is, but if you're a Christian person, and this is the framework from which you live, this is the life that you're living, you, you are living in the truth of his, his life, death, and resurrection. Okay, what are you going to do to help other people follow Jesus? How are you going to sacrifice and give of yourself to help other people in this room? Very, let's get practical. There's probably someone in this room that the sovereign God of the universe would like you to help follow him better, or a bunch of them really, and by the way, when you do that, they help you follow him better too. Just so you know. It's not a, a one-way street. But how is your life going to change so that you can be positioned to give of your life to help other people follow Jesus? What has to change? Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, you are more gracious to us than we even realize Thank you that you lived this life that we were supposed to live and you showed us how to live. And we just pray you'd help us to love you and love others. We thank you for the atonement. We thank you that we are washed white as snow, that we are clean, uh, that you've done everything. You've paid the price for our sins. We belong to you and we are here to glorify you. Thank you that you are reigning right now. You have risen, that you will resurrect us and that you've given us eternal life starting right now that we get to live as worshipers of you day in, day out for the rest of eternity, making much of your name that is so worthy to be glorified. Help us. Holy Spirit, empower us to make much of the name of Jesus with the rest of our life. We love you, Lord. Praise things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.